Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, Chapter 9 Well, after the violence of the three-hour tempest had subsided in the previous chapter, a thick darkness settled upon those Nephites that did survive. That is, those who were not swallowed up in the earth or burned by fire or carried away in whirlwinds. Things quieted enough, in fact, in the midst of this darkness that the survivors could be heard in their state of continual lament. This was described in verse 23 of 3 Nephi chapter 8 as great mourning and howling and weeping among all the people. Oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day, they were heard to say, in multiple locations throughout the land. This is one of the many poignant laments that can be found in the Book of Mormon. Perhaps the most memorable comes from Nephi when he said in 2 Nephi chapter 4, O wretched man that I am! Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. We recently read another lament in Helaman chapter 7. That was Nephi upon his tower, who said, Oh, that I could have had my days in the days when my father Nephi first came out of the land of Jerusalem, that I could have joyed with him in the promised land. Then were his people easy to be entreated, firm to keep the commandments of God, and slow to be led to do iniquity, and they were quick to hearken unto the words of the Lord. Yea, if my days could have been in those days, then would my soul have had joy in the righteousness of my brethren. But behold, I am consigned that these are my days." and that my soul shall be filled with sorrow because of this, the wickedness of my brethren. But the lament in this chapter is different. This one gives us a sense for the tone and content of the lament that might occur for those who cross into the other side, where their night of darkness begins, where they can no longer take happiness in sin and their season to repent is past. We can imagine lamenting with either Nephi regarding our foibles or regarding the slowness of others to repent, as the other Nephi lamented, or with Mormon as he lamented over man's forgetfulness in Helaman chapter 12, or later with Mormon when he will say, O ye fair ones. But a lament that we never hope to utter is the one presented here in 3 Nephi chapter 9, O that we, or I, had repented before this great and terrible day. It is in this chapter when the personal teachings of Jesus Christ to the Nephites begins in earnest. And this is even before he appears to them in the light, in 3 Nephi chapter 11. First, we can see that he speaks to the people in the darkness. His voice comes to them where they are. It penetrates the mists and quiets their laments. It speaks of justice and destruction. Woe, woe, woe unto this people, 
He'll say in verse 2, Woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice, because of the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people. And it is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. But then the voice offers the same message that has come from prophets in ages before, yet this time this message is intensely personal, offered by the one who had just faced the full fury of justice and hung upon the cross and who declared victoriously that it is finished and, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He says in verse 15 and then 18, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. I was with the Father from the beginning. I am the light and life of the world. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Well, his ability to claim all mankind had just been made complete when he says these words in 3 Nephi chapter 9 to these Nephites. Now he could say to these surviving Nephites with the same sense of claimancy as a shepherd who gathers his lost and frightened sheep, O all ye that are spared because you are more righteous than they, will ye not now return unto me and repent of your sins and be converted, that I may heal you? Yea, verily I say unto you, if ye will come unto me, ye shall have eternal life. Behold, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you, and whosoever will come, him will I receive, and blessed are those who come unto me. This is the merciful invitation that penetrates the darkness for these troubled Nephites, It is the same message that sounds in our ears today, even when our eyes cannot behold Him. It comes to us where we are, before the time when He will appear to us in the light, as we navigate the darkened corridors and misty byways of mortality. Again, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you, and whosoever will come, him I will receive. Or, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you, as he has said in other dispensations, including our own, in Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 63. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. This is a wonderful 22-verse chapter, and what an event to have this happen after the destruction that we read of in 3 Nephi, chapter 8, to actually hear the voice of the Lord. So this voice will appear right away in the opening of chapter 9, and in verses 1 through 11, uh, it will be heard all upon the face of the land, as it says. And in so doing, in speaking to the people, the Savior will account for all the cities which were destroyed, and he explains why they were destroyed. So he speaks of Moronihah being uh, covered with earth, and Zarahemla being burned with fire, and Mokum and Jerusalem, and many others. Then in verse 12, this voice will acknowledge the other destructions upon the land during the three-hour storm that took place, in addition to the destruction of these cities. He will say, the destruction that I have caused to come upon this land and upon this people. Then, this voice will take a turn, and he will invite all who were spared to return to him and repent. He does this in verse 13 and 14. O all ye that are spared, because you are more righteous than they, will you now not return unto me and repent of your sins. Then, in this glorious moment, in verses 15 through 16, this voice will identify himself. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he will say. Then, the Savior will make this very important announcement. 
Again, this is happening as his voice penetrates the dark. Um, He's telling the people this now before he actually appears to them in person in the light. He will announce that the law of Moses is now fulfilled. We might remember a conflict several chapters back when the people uh, reasoned that since the sign of his birth had been given, that it was no longer necessary to live the law of Moses. But it hadn't yet been fulfilled, and so that, um, that problem was solved back then with that explanation. But now, it truly has. Now, the acceptable sacrifice, as the Savior will explain in these verses, extending from verses 17 through the end, verse 22, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And he will proclaim redemption to the people during this time and, and discuss the need for a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and that he will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings, as he'll say in verse 19. His words will end in verse 22 with the invitation one final time to repent and become as a little child, and uh, gives these repentant uh, people, uh, or at least penitent people, the, the thread of hope that they can still come unto him. So with that, let's return to verse 1. And it came to pass that there was a voice heard among all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, consider all of the sounds that had been heard prior to this chapter. So in the previous chapter, we heard the sounds of lightning uh, and thunder. We heard the quaking of the earth, uh, tumultuous groanings and noises that would have had to have related to earthquakes. There would have been the sound of wind Uh, There was wind that was so strong, whirlwinds, that it carried people away. Uh, There would have been the sound of fire. There would have been screams and cries that came along with that. So all of the noises that were incident to the destruction that took place in that three-hour storm, uh, the people would have heard that, and we could hear that with them as we read 3 Nephi chapter 8. Then the next sound to come were the collective voices of the people as they lamented and said, oh, that we had repented. And they wailed and they, they howled and they mourned. Uh, so those cries would have been terrible indeed. So now here is a new sound that we get here in verse 1. It is a voice. This voice actually doesn't identify itself until midway through the chapter as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For now, all we know is that it is a voice that's heard among all the inhabitants of the earth. So somehow this singular voice is penetrating enough that it supersedes all of the other noises that are taking place or that took place in 3 Nephi chapter 8. It's heard among all the inhabitants of the earth upon all the face of the land. So with that preface, here is what this voice says in verse 2. Woe, 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 three woes unto this people, Woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice, because of the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people, and it is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. No one knows the devil like this voice. He has just faced him in Gethsemane and on Calvary. He has dealt with all that Satan could throw at him as he walked in mortality. He knows his intentions, he knows his methods, and he knows that he has had his own measure of success among the people of the earth, and because of that he laugheth and his angels rejoice. Regarding this incredible moment and this phenomenon 
of a voice coming from heaven and speaking to the people. Bruce R. McConkie has written, Twice during that terrible night of darkness that attested to the death of Christ in the old world, the voice of the Redeemer spoke to those in the new world. I do not think I overstate the matter in suggesting that the world has never known a more dramatic teaching moment. The audible voice of the Lord had been heard speaking from the heavens before, but never to such an extensive and numerous audience. And now this voice will give an accounting for all the cities that were destroyed, and will, and he takes personal credit for destroying them. Very interestingly, he will say that I burned with fire and that I caused to be sunk. So here goes this passage. Verse 3, Behold, that great city Zarahemla have I burned with fire, and the inhabitants thereof. And behold, that great city Moroni have I caused to be sunk in the depths of the sea, and the inhabitants thereof to be drowned. So as readers, we followed these hapless people through this destruction in the previous chapter, and we saw that for what it was, but now we're finding that there was a force behind this. There was a divine force behind this that knew it was happening and allowed it to happen. Verse 5, And behold, that great city Moronihah have I covered with earth, and the inhabitants thereof to hide their iniquities and their abominations from before my face that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come any more unto me against them. Now, this idea of people hiding themselves from before the face of God is something that Alma introduced to us in Alma chapter 12 and also reiterated to his son Helaman in Alma 36. So the Savior is alluding to that same concept here. And behold, the city of Gilgal have I caused to be sunk, and the inhabitants thereof to be buried up in the depths of the earth. Yea, and the city of Onihah, and the inhabitants thereof, and the city of Mokum, and the inhabitants thereof, and the city of Jerusalem, and the inhabitants thereof. And we certainly have memories of the city of Jerusalem from the book of Alma. And waters have I caused to come up on the stead thereof to hide their wickedness and abominations from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come up any more unto me against them. And behold, the city of Gadiandi, and the city of Gadiamna, and the city of Jacob, and the city of Gimgimno. So these are cities that we haven't heard of before. We've always had the sense that there are more cities than those that have been named up to this point, and now that suspicion is being confirmed. All these have I caused to be sunk, and made hills and valleys in the places thereof, and the inhabitants thereof have I buried up in the depths of the earth to hide their wickedness and abominations from before my face." that the blood of the prophets and the saints should not come up any more unto me against them. So he's speaking in, in kind of a poetic form here and repeating that same phrase. And behold, that great city Jacob Ugath, which was inhabited by the people of King Jacob. And we know who King Jacob is. Uh, he was the newly appointed king by this wicked secret combination at the end of uh, Third Nephi chapter 6. Then they did murder Laconius too and toppled him, but then everything fell apart for them. They fled to the northern uh, countries and presumably went to this city and named it Jacob Ugath. So now we know how that story ended for Jacob and his small band of followers that had people adding uh, to their numbers each day as we came to the end uh, of that storyline in 3 Nephi chapter 7. They are destroyed. Then he says, uh, The people of King Jacob have I caused to be burned with fire because of their sins and their wickedness which was above all the wickedness of the whole earth because of their secret murders and combinations. So here is the Lord himself acknowledging their wickedness that we read of at the end of 3 Nephi chapter 6. 
for it was they that did destroy the peace of my people and the government of the land. The Lord was well aware of this the entire time and is speaking specifically well, with respect to this thing that has happened. Therefore I did cause them to be burned, to destroy them from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints should not come up unto me any more against them. Now the Savior was certainly dealing with his own problems during his own mortal ministry in the old world. Uh, For him to be aware of the political intrigue and secret combinations that were taking place by this cell of people that were led by Jacob is remarkable indeed, and it shows that he truly is all-knowing. Somehow, in a way that we can't comprehend, the Lord is able to think of more than one thing at a time, including the falling sparrow. And so it is that he can address this thing that has been happening in this part of the land with the... um, with a tone as though he has been present the entire time. Uh, we, we can trust then that the same is true for us in each of our lives and that, the, that he does have a personal awareness of each of us and the issues that, uh, that take place in our lives. And this is evidence of that. Verse 10, And behold, the city of Laman, and the city of Josh, and the city of Gad, and the city of Kishkumen. Interesting to see that Kishkumen had a city named after him. Have I caused to be burned with fire and the inhabitants thereof? It shows that people held him in high regard, high regard enough to build a city in his name, uh, even though he was such a subversive villain uh, to us in the way that Mormon presented him to us. Because of their wickedness in casting out the prophets and stoning those whom I did send to declare unto them concerning their wickedness and their abominations. And because they did cast them all out, that there were none righteous among them, I did send down fire and destroy them, that their wickedness and abominations might be hid from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints whom I sent among them might not cry unto me from the ground against them. So there's a very interesting order here as he says this for the third time. He'll say something different for the third time uh, in the next chapter regarding the hen gathering her, her chickens. Verse 12, and many great destructions. So now the scope of this conversation is broadening. So he's saying, in addition to these cities, um, have I caused to come upon this land and upon this people because of their wickedness and uh, their abominations? Well, this certainly adds to our understanding of a God of mercy and of the good shepherd and the God of love. This is something that Thomas Arvaletta points out in his Book of Mormon Study Guide. These are all accurate and true name titles, as Valletta says, but we also learn things in these verses about Jesus Christ as a God of justice. He certainly is a master of that domain as well, and he has stood and faced the full wrath of justice very recently, uh, just before he has appeared to these people and is speaking to them in this way. So now we're getting closer to the time in which this voice will actually identify himself uh, first, first uh, verse 13 and 14, he says, O all ye that are spared, because you are more righteous than they. Now, a couple interesting things are happening here. The first is that there's a ray of hope. There's been nothing but condemnatory language and an accounting of the cities that were destroyed and that the, the destruction of the whole land and the people that were all also destroyed in this process. And so now there's this, this, this thread of hope because he's offering the invitation to repent. The other interesting piece of insight here is that the people that are being invited to repent are told that they were spared because they were more righteous than they. 
yet there is still a need for them to repent. This should show us that when the Savior comes again, uh, it's possible for the imperfect to still be spared. And that should give us a measure of comfort. Then he says, Will ye not now return unto me and repent of your sins and be converted that I may heal you? The great healer is speaking again, and where our suspicion that this is Jesus the Christ himself is, 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 is raising here as we read this. Just imagine reading this text for the very first time without the benefit of any summarizing um, uh, head notes or anything else and wondering, is this really him? Well, he's inviting them to be converted that I may heal you. Then in verse 14, Yea, verily I say unto you, if you will come unto me, ye shall have eternal life. Now we really know who this is. Behold, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you, and whosoever will come, him will I receive, and blessed are those who come unto me. The Savior has said such things before to and through prophets throughout the Book of Mormon, but here he is speaking to all of these people as this voice is penetrating the din. Here's some commentary, uh, first from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Jesus Christ promised, Blessed are those who come unto me. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland explained the meaning of this invitation and how it applies in our lives. Come, Christ says lovingly, come follow me. Wherever you are going, first come and see what I do. See where and how I spend my time. Learn of me. Walk with me. Talk with me. Believe. Listen to me. Pray. In turn, you will find answers to your own prayers. God will bring rest to your souls. Come, follow me. Now this from Ogden and Skinner as they summarize what we've read so far. God himself gave a damage report, a description of the extent of the destruction at the crucifixion. What would a survivor be thinking after suffering such cataclysms and then hearing a voice saying that he, the speaker, did all that? I burned with fire. I caused to be sunk. I covered with earth. I buried up. I caused to be burned. I did send down fire. And last but not least, your very spiritual survival is because I allowed it. Such a graphic pronouncement of power could not help but rivet the attention of all listeners on the next declarations when he says, Will ye now not return unto me, that I may heal you? There could have been no doubt that this voice, whoever he was, had the power to do so. God invites all to return and to repent. His message then and now is look to God and live. Now, as Ogden and Skinner also intimated, we still don't know who this voice is, but we certainly have our our strong suspicions, and in fact, really, it's undoubtable after what he just said. But now, he formally identifies himself in verse 15. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth, and all things that in them are. I was with the Father from the beginning. I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and in me hath the Father glorified his name. This is the newly resurrected Savior that has completed his work upon the earth very recently that's saying this. I came unto my own, and my own received me not. And we know all about that from reading the New Testament. And the scriptures concerning my coming are fulfilled. He's saying that to a people that had the brass plates, and had the prophecies of Lehi and Nephi and everyone moving forward uh, in their own canon. Uh, But as readers, he's also saying that to us. We know about the scriptures concerning his coming, 
and this is the moment when they were all fulfilled. Now he will make this announcement as we move into verse 17 uh, with respect to the law being fulfilled and what type of sacrifice he now requires. And as many as have received me, to them have I given to become the sons of God. And even so will I to as many as shall believe on my name. For behold, by me redemption cometh, and in me is the law of Moses fulfilled. Well, that's priesthood talk. That's that's um, reference to the covenant path. I have given to become the sons of God. And of course, that's not exclusive of either gender as we read that. The way is most op- most certainly open to all, both uh, male and female, black and white, bond and free. All are alike unto God, as Nephi has taught us on other occasions. Verse 18, I am the light and the life of the world. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Elder Robert D. Hales summarized this moment by saying, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's out of John chapter 8, verse 12. This is the light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 13. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Where the light of Christ is found, the darkness of Lucifer, even Satan, must depart, defeated. Then the Savior says this, in verse 19, And ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away. For I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. Verse 20, And ye shall, and this could almost say, and ye shall instead, Offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So this is a dramatic change indeed. These sacred sacrifices that have been offered from the very beginning, we can think about the way that Adam did this and said, I know not, save the Lord commanded me, that have been such a critical part of looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice of the Savior himself. These sacrifices have now become outmoded in a way, because the Savior has offered the great and last sacrifice, something that's uh, described very eloquently in Hebrews. So he says, And ye shall offer for me a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. Well, there's quite a lot to talk about here, so we will. Uh, the Lamanites, this certainly happened to them in the book of Helaman, in uh, Helaman chapter 5. We can think about that incident when the Lamanites were converted in that way, and that might be what the Savior is referring to here. Here's some commentary that talks about this fundamental change in what it is that should be sacrificed. First, from the Institute Manual. The command to offer animal sacrifice was first given to Adam. The purpose of animal sacrifice was to point one's mind to the Savior's ultimate sacrifice. The faithful were taught that animal sacrifice would cease after the Son of God had offered his blood as the great and last sacrifice. That's out of Alma chapter 34, verse 10. Amulek explained that following the atonement of Jesus Christ, animal sacrifice would no longer be required. He said there should be a stop to the shedding of blood. Then shall the law of Moses be fulfilled. And that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. We can just imagine that that might be one of the the passages that those confused people 
in the earlier chapters of of Third Nephi uh, that they read, thinking that this era was over once Samuel's sign of his birth had appeared. Now the Institute Manual continues, Once the offering of Jesus Christ was complete, the voice of God proclaimed to the Book of Mormon people, I will accept none of your sacrifices and burnt offerings. Even though animal sacrifice and burnt offerings were to be done away, the Lord did not end the law of sacrifice. Using 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 20, Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained that today the Lord requires sacrifices of a different nature. He said the Savior said he would no longer accept burnt offerings of animals. The gift or sacrifice he will accept now is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You can offer the Lord the gift of your broken or repentant heart and your contrite or obedient spirit. In reality, it is the gift of yourself, what you are and what you are becoming. Is there something in you or in your life that is impure or unworthy? When you get rid of it, that is a gift to the Savior. Is there a good habit or quality that is lacking in your life? When you adopt it and make it part of your character, you are giving a gift to the Lord. Uh, Now this from Ogden and Skinner. The law of sacrifice is an eternal law. It has been on the earth from the beginning and will continue forever. One aspect of this eternal law, the sacrificial offering of animals, was performed for centuries to point the minds of the people to the ultimate sacrifice of the Savior. But when Jesus died for us, he adjusted our focus to higher aspects of the law. Now, instead of blood sacrifices, he wants us to sacrifice or give up worldliness and dedicate our hearts and spirits to him and his work. Whoever comes unto Jesus with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. The last phrase clearly suggests that true conversion is often a calm, quiet, even unnoticeable experience. So now Ogden and Skinner are moving to that part of this verse in 3 Nephi chapter 20, saying that they knew it not. Now they continue, President Ezra Taft Benson described the process in these words, We must be careful as we seek to become more and more godlike that we do not become discouraged and lose hope. Becoming Christ-like is a lifetime pursuit and very often involves growth and change that is slow, almost imperceptible. The scriptures record remarkable accounts of men whose lives changed dramatically in an instant, as it were. Alma the Younger, Paul on the road to Damascus, Enos praying far into the night, King Lamoni. Such astonishing examples of the power to change, even those steeped in sin, give confidence that the atonement can reach those deepest in despair. But we must be cautious as we discuss these remarkable examples. Though they are real and powerful, they are the exception more than the rule. For every Paul, for every Enos, and for every King Lamoni, there are hundreds and thousands of people who find the process of repentance much more subtle, much more imperceptible. Day by day they move closer to the Lord, little realizing they are building a godlike life. They live quiet lives of goodness, service, and commitment. We must not lose hope. Hope is an anchor to the souls of men. Satan would have us cast away that anchor. In this way, he can bring discouragement and surrender. But we must not lose hope. We must remember that most repentance does not involve sensational or dramatic changes, but rather is a step-by-step, steady, and consistent movement towards godliness. It is tremendously significant, Ogden and Skinner continue, 
that Jesus asks all disciples from this point on to offer as a sacrifice to him a broken heart and a contrite spirit. By so doing, we emulate the Savior in very deed, for Jesus experienced both a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He died of a broken or ruptured heart, as Elder James E. Talmadge indicated. Quote, While, as stated in the text, the yielding up of life was voluntary on the part of Jesus Christ, for he had life in himself, and no man could take his life except as he willed to allow it to be taken. Uh, there was of necessity a direct physical cause of dissolution. The strong, loud utterance immediately following which he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, when considered in connection with other recorded details, points to a physical rupture of the heart as the direct cause of death. If the soldier's spear was thrust into the left side of the Lord's body and actually penetrated the heart, the outrush of blood and water observed by John is further evidence of a cardiac rupture. For it is known that in the rare instances of death resulting from a breaking of any part of the wall of the heart, blood accumulates within the pericardium, and there undergoes a change by which the corpuscles separate as a partially clotted mass from the almost colorless watery serum. The present writer believes that the Lord Jesus died of a broken heart. The psalmist sang in dolorous measure, according to his inspired prevision of the Lord's passion, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. That's out of Psalm 69, verse 20. In addition, now this is back to Ogden and Skinner, a contrite spirit was also the Savior's experience. Contrite is defined as crushed in spirit by a feeling of remorse for guilt. This Jesus experienced for all of us as well. Mark implied Jesus was crushed in spirit in Gethsemane when he reported that Jesus entered the garden and began to feel very heavy and sorrowful unto death. The crushing weight of sin, sorrow, and suffering for the universal family of God progressed to the point where Jesus began to bleed from every pore. And so the great Redeemer asks us, in return for his vicarious suffering on our behalf, to experience vicariously and symbolically what he experienced. In other words, as Ogden and Skinner are saying here, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now from two other commentators, McConkie and Millet, and uh, then from Elder Boyd K. Packer, we'll focus for a moment on this phrase, and they knew it not, uh, that change that took place. And President Benson spoke of it so well. And in fact, McConkie and Millet will quote again from President Benson here. They say a doctrinal point is found in the phrase, and they knew it not. For most, this baptism of fire experience is a continual process rather than a singular dramatic event. Most repentance does not involve sensational or dramatic changes, President Ezra Taft Benson explained, but rather is a step-by-step, steady and consistent movement toward godliness. Becoming Christ-like is a lifetime pursuit and very often involves growth and change that is slow, almost imperceptible. Now, President Boyd K. Packer uh, used this same scripture to express concern that the gift of the Holy Ghost is not recognized as it should be. He encouraged Latter-day Saints to cultivate the gift of the Holy Ghost and gave counsel on how to recognize the Spirit. He said, Too many of us are like those whom the Lord said came with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and at the time of their conversion were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. Imagine that, and they knew it not. It is not unusual for one to have received the gift and not really know it. There are so many places to go, so many things to do in this noisy world we can be too busy to pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit. 
Now returning to the text, uh, the final two verses of this chapter, the Savior says, Behold, I have come unto the world to bring redemption unto the world, to save the world from sin. So here we can see that he is the Redeemer and he is the Savior, and he's using those words in the active sense. Bring redemption and save the world. Ogden and Skinner have written, The one who caused all the cleansing damage then announced who he is. There can be no mistaking who he is. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. The creator of the world is the Son of the Father in heaven. He is the Redeemer. The law of Moses is fulfilled in him. He is the one who originally gave the law. In fact, he is the law. He exclaimed, I am the light and the life of the world, and I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He was crucified and then resurrected. Now, the final verse. Therefore, whoso repenteth and cometh unto me as a little child, him will I receive. For of such is the kingdom of God. Behold, for such I have laid down my life. Notice this, past tense. And have taken it up again. Therefore, repent and come unto me, ends of the earth, and be saved. So the formula for salvation is given here, and all of the um, the covenantal relationship that we must enter into with him is implied in his words. President Dallin H. Oaks once said in his talk called, Have You Been Saved? We are not saved in our sins as by being unconditionally saved through confessing Christ and then inevitably committing sins in our remaining lives. We are saved, and there he, he references Alma chapter 11 when Amalek had that heated discussion with Zeezrom. On that subject, we are saved from our sins by a weekly renewal of our repentance and cleansing through the grace of God and His blessed plan of salvation. Well, that is how the Savior introduced Himself to the Nephites. They were in darkness, they had been howling and lamenting, and then His penetrating voice came to them, gave an accounting for the destruction that had taken place. He acknowledged it and explained that He was behind it. But there were reasons for that. And then he offered unto them uh, his identity and his intention and ability to save and redeem and invited all present to avail themselves of that saving and redeeming power. That's then how this chapter comes to a close. We'll move into chapter 10 here in just a moment, and uh, his voice will appear again, and then we'll get quite a lot of commentary from Mormon as well before his actual appearance takes place in 3 Nephi chapter 11. So for now, this brings us to the end of 3 Nephi chapter 9. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text 
that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.